Lord, we praise You that we stand in the Gospel of Jesus Christ as a church. We've come to find in Jesus our hope and our strength. The One who takes the burden and the penalty of our sin and who has died in the place of His people to rescue us from sin and destruction and the wrath that we deserve. We praise You for the salvation that's in His name and the rejoicing that we have done in song and will continue to do today in this great message of redemption. Lord, as we think on our response to that message, I pray that You would direct our time together here in the Word, these brief moments that we have in defense of the faith. Lord, uh, as we enter into this endeavor, We recognize that we don't know everything. There are truths we're missing. There are things that we hold as true that are off kilter. We realize that there are those brothers and sisters with whom we disagree that may know more than we. We may know more than them, but ultimately it is your word, your will that matters. And I pray that as we labor as churches to be faithful to that word, even where we differ, Lord, that we would recognize that You know the end from the beginning. You know all truth. You personify truth, our Savior. We praise You for the life that we have in Your name and for the rejoicing that takes place here among us today as we lift up that Gospel of Christ crucified and risen. So I pray in that humble spirit that we'll come before the text today ever willing to learn and grow and that You will deepen each one of us in the truth. We pray for those who know not Christ as Savior, that they'd come to a conviction and understanding that that is their condition. That they would come to an understanding of the rescue that Christ offers freely by grace alone. Please may that gospel be made clear today in the testimonies that we hear, in the baptisms that we witness in this time now in the text of Scripture. We ask your help and your aid by the Spirit to feed this body on your word. Through Christ we pray. Amen. We do not include a sermon on the theme of baptism in every baptismal service, but we want to do so today for two reasons. Number one, we have six candidates for baptism, which kind of crunches the time that we typically would take in our journey through 1 Corinthians, and that's a, that's a wonderful problem to have. But secondly, the passage that we considered last week is a baptism battleground. We just mentioned that in passing, so putting those two together with a little less time today and uh, the fact that we're in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 7, you can make your way there to that uh, text, I'd like to ask the question from this text, as you see here on the screen, should we baptize holy infants? A closer look at 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 14. So what we would have taken time, if we had a two-hour sermon last week, uh, we might have looked at this last week, but we can look at it today in light of the baptism that is to come. And in doing that, let me say up front that we're taking, and we have to take in these kind of conversations, a defensive stance. By that I mean to defend... 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 14, against the view that it commends the baptism of infants. First, what I'd like to do is devote a few minutes to understanding how our Bible-believing, born-again, 
brothers and sisters in gospel-preaching churches commend the baptism of infants on the force of a parent's faith. Then we'll consider reasons against this reading of verse 14. For those who visit with us today, please understand this is really uh, typical. Uh, We don't typically just take a topic or a question like this. Generally, we just work our way through texts of Scripture with maybe passing reference to those who might differ on various views. But Christ does commission the New Testament church to defend the truth. And as He calls us to defend the truth, we need to, at times, talk about matters where there is difference of opinion, and sometimes even frank critique of widely held views. And so we proceed, as we come back here to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 today, beginning at verse 12, if you'll follow as I read from this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 12. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For, here's the reason, the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy, as you know. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called us to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, whether he will be brought to salvation in Christ crucified and risen? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Should we then, in reference here in verse 14, to children who are holy, should we baptize these holy infants? Some would say, yes, we should baptize holy infants. In fact, that's the teaching of this passage. That's what it's leading us to understand implicitly. Ministering in the 16th century, John Calvin was a theologian of a luminary, a a magisterial exegete of Scripture, and we would follow his teaching in many areas. But as the father of the Reformed faith, his defense of infant baptism carries great weight to our very day. So I looked at Calvin's commentary on 1 Corinthians, and I draw these texts directly from his comments on verse 14. He says, first of all, that uh, that he wants to affirm the universal propagation of sin and damnation through the seed of Adam. That's a way of saying that he believes in human depravity. That is, a child is born with a sin nature. Just on a simple level, you've pretty much figured that out in that you never taught your child to lie. You never taught your child to be selfish. You didn't have to have instruction in how to be disobedient or ornery. That's nature. And he wants to make sure that we don't draw the wrong conclusion from 1 Corinthians 7.14, citing Ephesians 2.3, we are by nature sinners. Psalm 51.5, we are conceived in iniquity. 
by nature. So he wants to be very careful to un- that we understand that children are, born, are not born into a state of holiness. So far, so good. But as he comments further on this passage, he draws this conclusion. Despite what he says about human depravity, he says a believer's child is exempted from the common lot of mankind so as to be set apart to the Lord. So the first paragraph, the first statement there, he is exempted from that, from that fallen state, so as to be set apart to the Lord. That's the word holy that we find here. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. They are clean. They are holy. So he is saying that this text is teaching that a child is somehow exempted from that fallen state on some level by relationship to his or her parent. He continues forward. If the Lord admits them into the church by His word, why should we refuse them the sign? What's the sign? The sign is baptism to identify them with the church. Why withhold baptism from a child who is a member of God's holy people? We'll pause here only to note that Calvin, as you can see very clearly, hangs an awful lot on that phrase, they are holy, they are not unclean. To exempt a child from a natural state of spiritual alienation from God on the merits of a parent's faith in Christ is is saying a lot. It's quite a leap. It's also a lot to claim that the infant of a believing parent is in the church and therefore should be baptized on the merits of a parent's faith. But that's his position, that's the statement, and many would follow him today. One that would speak as one of the most articulate defenders of infant baptism in our generation would be R.C. Sproul. Sproul could sell ice cubes in Antarctica. And I mean it. If you want to be persuaded of the defense of infant baptism, listen to R.C. Sproul. Uh, But I think his misuse of this verse is rather glaring. And you won't catch it if you hear his instruction. But let me bring that out. Sproul argues, notice verse 14 again, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, the unbelieving wife made holy because of her husband, otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. I want us to focus in, we're just going to take for sake of argument here today, that we're, in a, we're dealing with a home, I'll just keep illustrating this way, we're dealing with a home where the wife is a believer in Christ. She has been sanctified, truly redeemed by Jesus. But after her marriage to her husband, she came to that place. Her husband remains unmarried, and they have a daughter. All right, there's our family. We'll just just see them that way. She's saved, he's lost, they have a daughter, an infant daughter. Sproul argues that Paul makes very little of the benefit an unbeliever receives from marriage to a believer. The unbelieving mate's holiness that's referenced here is limited, secondary, personally insignificant. But he says that that individual's, our, our focus on that father who is unsaved 
is for the benefit of the children who, are, who issue from the marriage. So it really doesn't have a lot to say about the unsaved husband. But he claims then that the unbelieving spouse's status for this reason, so the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, means to sprawl that the unsaved dad does not get in the way of the infant being baptized. That's all it means. He matches this secondly with the child's holiness. Here the benefit to the child is massive. He identifies this child with the church in baptism. So the phrase, speaking of the child, huge. The holiness of the unbelieving husband simply to help out the child. That's how he reads this passage. Let's walk through it then from our perspective. And we would say as a church, no, this passage does not support infant baptism. And I'll bring out two lines of thought here. First of all, using 1 Corinthians 7.14 as a proof text for infant baptism, that is a text that supports infant baptism, fails to honor the context of the passage. What is that context? What issue does Paul address? Members of the Corinthian church are wondering if marriage to an unbeliever renders them impure. Marriage unites two souls, body and spirit, in a one flesh relationship. And Paul has just drawn a pretty significant point, on the, uh, uh, observation on that point, chapter 6, verse 15. Remember this passage. Chapter 6, verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. With that kind of thinking and tracking with the Apostle Paul there that we are members of the body of Christ, so joining together with a prostitute is becoming one in body with that individual and that that is wrong, drawing the conclusion then from that to marriage could lead one to say then a one flesh relationship with an unbeliever is wrong. And I should leave that marriage. Does it not follow that this one flesh relationship with my unsaved husband renders my marriage impure? Should I end it, Paul? It's just picture this woman coming in and Paul sits down with her and having a conversation and counsel. What does he say to her? No. Do not divorce your husband. That's not the answer. Stay married. All is well. Paul's not talking about choosing a marriage partner. A believer must not choose to enter a one-flesh relationship with an unbeliever. But even if a believer does, and specifically here in this case with this saved woman, you should not divorce. Your relationship is not wrong in God's sight. You came to Christ as Savior, if your mate is willing to live with you, do not divorce. And that's the qualifier of verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. 
You're to live at peace with this individual. There should be a desire, verse 16, to see them come to know Christ as Savior. But if they walk away and say, I don't want to be married to a Christian, be at peace. Let them go. It's not wrong. But you should not choose to divorce your husband. So what's the whole point of the passage? If your unbelieving mate is willing to remain married to you, know that your marriage is holy in God's eyes because of your relationship with the Lord. It is not spiritually unclean. And if the marriage has God's approval, and follow me here, if the marriage has God's approval, then the fruit of that union is also pure in God's eyes. And I picture Paul here sitting across the table from this woman as she seeks counsel, And Paul says, otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they're holy. I think what he's saying is something like, think about this. When you see that little girl, when your love goes out to her and nurture and care, you know that God smiles. We don't don't have to defend this. You don't have the sense as you hold this little girl that she is somehow unclean and unholy, that you should do what? Offer her up for adoption because she is the product of an unbeliever in your husband? No. You know that your child is right in the eyes of God to have, to be part of your family. You know intuitively that your child is a blessing from God, that He smiles upon her presence. And if that's the case... Why is it the case? Because your union with this man is holy in the sight of God. It's not impure. It's not wrong. He is an unbeliever. Verse 16, he needs to come to know Christ as his Savior. We pray to that end. We hope to that end. We can't make that happen. That's the goal. But your relationship with him is not evil. It's not unclean. He is made holy in the marriage by you. Since He is holy in a one flesh relationship with you, then the fruit of your marriage is holy. And you know this intuitively. So what he's saying is that this man is made holy by you. That is just in the area of marriage, not in the area of salvation. Again, remember last week we're using the word holy differently here than normal. But not as a saved man, verse 16. He's not saved by marrying you. Verse 16, he needs to come to know the Lord. But he is holy in your one flesh relationship. That's why the fruit of your relationship is holy, which you intuitively understand. So this passage is not about infant baptism. It is not oriented toward the child. It's oriented toward the unsaved father in our scenario. So I would argue that Calvin and Sproul indeed have this exactly backwards. The unsaved mate is not de-emphasized. This is the main point. Remain married to him. The reference to holy offspring is the side comment to support the counsel to stay married. 
Verse 14, the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. That's the point. The implication, the side support, is otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Because the man is holy in relationship to you, in this sense, the offspring are. Now, I, I want to be honest and fair here, and so a quick sideline. It is not wrong to draw inferential, implicit doctrinal truth from Scripture. For instance, 1 Corinthians 5 calls upon the church to remove from its membership a believer who is walking in unrepentant sin. Church membership is not addressed in 1 Corinthians 5. You don't find any mention of it whatsoever. But you cannot put someone outside a circle they're not in. So, the church, so church membership is rightly inferred from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It's implicit truth, not explicit truth. That makes sense. What's explicit is the church cannot extend fellowship to an unrepentant member. The church must expel that member. That's the explicit teaching of the passage. The implicit teaching is some sort of knowledge or role of church members must exist for the church to be able to put someone outside the circle. That's implicit teaching. It's there. It's right. It makes sense with the context. But the context of 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 14 implies nothing about infant baptism. It's not the point that's being made. It's not necessary for the text to make sense. In fact, it's something that's being inserted into the text. So the verse is forced into the service of an idea that is brought from outside of this text and imposed upon it. It doesn't fit the context. Secondly, Using 1 Corinthians 7.14 as a proof text for infant baptism severs the connection Paul makes between the unsaved parent and the child. The unsaved husband is considered holy by his union with his born-again wife. The child is considered holy in connection to his believing mother. However, the child's holy status is also rooted in the holy marriage. And this is the division that we can't have. The unsaved infant and the unsaved father are considered set apart to God on equal grounds, not on different grounds. Nothing in the passage allows us to, to divide the two into distinct categories. So think of it. Because the husband is made holy by his wife, therefore the fruit of that union is made holy by that connection. So if the believing parent's faith qualifies the infant for baptism and membership in the church, then the unbelieving parent is similarly qualified. If the child's qualified for baptism and church membership, so is the unbelieving husband. Calvin claims the children's holy status admits them into the church. Those are his words. Admits them into the church. Well, if that's true of the offspring, then it has to be true of this unsaved father. 
And no Christian, Bible-believing Christian, would defend that point. So Calvin says that the child's holy status admits them to the church, but this is what he says about the unsaved father, just in our scenario, or unsaved mother. This is what he says. These are his words. This sanctification is of no benefit to the unbelieving party. Huge benefit to the child. No benefit to the unsaved mate. Is that a fair reading of the text? I think what we have there is a division of the two that is forced upon those who take this position. I'd offer that Calvin is stuck in a dilemma and not playing fair here. He knows baptism is a sign of repentance. It is a sign of new birth. It is a sign of participation in the new covenant through Christ. And so he has to treat the child and the unsaved father here differently. But the context does not allow that. If these verses commend the baptism of an infant, then they commend the baptism of an unbelieving parent. If these verses do not condone the baptism of an unsaved parent, which they certainly do not, then they do not condone the baptism of an infant. The reason the infant is holy is because he or she is the fruit of what God considers a holy marriage. The benefit to the father in this scenario, is exactly the same as the benefit to the child. Now, obviously, one's mature and one is not. And there's a different relationship that this believing woman has to her child and to her husband, undoubtedly. But the child, as the product of the marital union, is not somehow exponentially above his or her unsaved parent. And forcing the text to divide the two in this way indicates that we're on the wrong page, that the project is is ill-conceived. Both must come to Christ, which is the point of verse 16, with the husband. Why is a child not mentioned in verse 16? Because it's secondary issue. It's assumed that husband, verse 16, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know but that your life will not lead him to Christ? So what? Don't leave him. The marriage is pure in that sense. The child is in exactly the same place. Needs to come to trust Christ as Savior. And our brothers and sisters of infant baptizing conviction would agree with that. That the child does need to come to a place of personal faith in Christ. So we don't differ on that point. So as we delve further into this verse, verse 14, I would offer that infant baptism is nowhere found in this passage not even implicitly. Baptism does not, however, stand quietly in the background of this text. Not the baptism of a baby. Not, of course, the baptism of an unbeliever. But it stands quietly in the background in the baptism of the believing mate. That's where baptism is found, if anywhere, in this passage. In chapter 1, remember what Paul said? You you guys are fighting over who baptized you. I didn't baptize anybody. Wait a minute, I did. I baptized a few people, but that's not the point. Now, they needed to get their attitude adjusted there, right? But what does chapter 1 indicate? They were being baptized. Those who had come to trust Christ as Savior had been immersed. 
they were following Christ in this way. So lose the competitive spirit. But this woman we're talking about in this relationship has followed the Lord in believer's baptism. The believers at Corinth were immersed in water. Why? To publicly declare and to publicly picture their identification with Christ. Through the symbolism of immersion, they come to be buried in the water momentarily to symbolize that they have died with Christ to sin and to who they are. And then rising out of the water to picture and symbol the resurrection that they have in union with Christ. Nowhere in the New Testament does such identification with Christ depend upon the confession of a parent. The point can be made... Verses can be assembled that might seem to indicate that or could work with that idea, but nowhere does the New Testament speak this way, that the faith of a parent is what is essential for the witness of a child. But under a new covenant, the law of God is written on the heart of those who enter into that covenant. There is a regeneration that takes place in the soul. The soul is cleansed. And all who trust in Christ's saving grace are so cleansed. Now when Paul uses holiness and cleanness here in this verse, verse 14, he's using it in a different sense than that. But when we take the deepest sense of holiness, the deepest sense of cleansing, there we are applying it to this mother. For she has come to the place of standing before the people of God and identifying with the death and resurrection of Christ, saying that that is my new identity in Jesus. And so today here, in good conscience, by a decisive declaration of identification with Christ's death and resurrection, in a public proclamation of their faith in Christ, symbolized in the burial in water and the resurrection from that water. Six candidates today enter these waters of baptism to testify that they have been born again that Christ has saved them, and that they have trusted Him as Lord and Savior. You come in among us today, as I mentioned, this is kind of a, a strange sermon. Come back next week and you'll see normality, Lord willing, as we just walk our way through the next verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But that said, if you're here today and you say, I, I'm my own, I don't belong to Jesus. I don't identify as His child, as His disciple, as one. And I mean, to go that far that I've died with Him and risen with Him, if you find yourself in that condition today, we welcome you among us. We are so glad that you are here. And I would ask that you just understand where we're coming from. The picture today, what is happening in this tank, is not the washing away of sins but as a public proclamation that my sins have been washed away by Christ. We're not claiming sinlessness. 
but we are claiming that Christ's death and resurrection has paid the full penalty of our sin. And it would be our joy, it would be our invitation to you that we might be able to show you more carefully from Scripture how Jesus Christ pays the cost of sin and gives salvation to those who call on His name in faith and trust. That's what these are saying by entering these waters today. And that's what we'll now be able to hear in their own words as they bear witness to what Christ has done to draw them to Himself. So I'd say this isn't some exclusive hold that we have. It costs no money. There's no strings attached. It is the free grace of God in Christ to provide salvation to souls that trust Him. And that invitation then is extended to you through Christ. Come to Him today. Today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off. Put your trust and your hope in Him. For those of us who know Christ as Savior, for those of us maybe particularly who have stood in the waters of baptism, this is a moment of great joy for us. This is a moment to witness, indeed one of the happiest moments that we have as believers in this waking world, to witness the saving grace of Christ in the testimony of those who now come to speak to us about their faith and to be baptized as Christ's command. We rejoice with these brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, help us now as we do that, that we might be filled as a church with Your Spirit. A great joy would come upon these candidates that You'd give them courage and just a peace of heart as they speak to us. And Lord, that we as a church can hear and testify to their testimony of faith. We ask that You'll meet with us here uniquely in this time that we spend together. Bless each one of them. Draw us close and open the eyes of those who have not yet seen the wonder of this salvation. May they continue to draw close to You. Blessed to this end we pray. May Christ's name be lifted high, hallowed, honored, exalted. May we rest in the joy that You give of pure conscience, knowing what Christ has done to pay the penalty of our sin and to give us hope eternally. It's in His name that we pray and ask these things. Amen.